part nine, marriage, divorce, and remarriage throughout church history. I do aim to make this the last one, so I am planning to formally close it out today. Last, we were in 1577 and beyond, so what happened during the times of Reformation that caused some major changes in marriage as we have been studying. Last, we looked a lot in depth at Calvin's Geneva. This is very much, I said, this is gonna be a little parentheses, and then it wound up being two different sessions. And last time I did it, when I got to the close, or when I was like, oh, I have like one minute, I need to just close, I, I, I skipped 40 slides. Like, that's not an exaggeration. I skipped 40 slides. So what I'm planning to do is re-record that session and break it up into probably two 35 to 40 minute presentations not rush it, just kind of give everything I wanted to. That covers Calvin's Geneva. But at least for now, I do want to close out Calvin's Geneva because we went there to see that from this point, it really became a, a hub of the Reformation. A lot of great theology, a lot of great institutions. Missionaries were sent out from there. Um, it became very influential. So the question is, well, what, what brought marriage back? What made it more conform to the biblical norms, what, what was it? What made Geneva's Calvin, if quote unquote, you know, what was the, the secret ingredient to it? I think Calvin answers that question for us in his 61st sermon on Deuteronomy, where he charges preachers with the following. He says, quote, let the pastors boldly dare all things by the word of God. Let them consecrate all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and to obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do all according to the word of God. Greer, one of my favorite historians on Calvin's Geneva, simply summarizes it like this. It was a triumph of the preaching of the word. The Reformation began with the bold preaching of the word by Farrell, that was William Farrell and others. It was as a preacher of the word that Calvin took up his task. And for 25 years he labored, often in great bodily weakness, but in the spirit's power. At the close of his ministry, Geneva was a city of the preaching of the word more than any city on earth. And I would add to that, it wound up becoming a big influence and model for other places where the Reformation would continue and grow throughout the world. It showed the value and efficacy of sound discipline. For a sound discipline, Calvin contended through most of his ministry. And when it was established, then victory was secure. So Geneva became, as Knox said, the most perfect school of Christ since the days of the apostle. That's high praise. Knox went on, Manners and religion to be so sincerely reformed, I have not yet seen in any other place. So most simply, it was what we talked about when we talked about the Puritans. They sought to have all of life conform to the word of God. This is the success and triumph of Geneva. He there quoted John Knox. This will kind of be a segue into our next portion. You know, who was John Knox would be one question you may have. John Knox was born 1513 through 1572. So this is around the same era, era as John Calvin, pretty much the same. I'm not gonna go into a lot of his history because we do wanna eventually get back to kind of our main scope here, you know, looking at some love letters between believers, how they practically lived out marriage. Monox is important. He did help with the Book of Common Prayer and also the Geneva Bible. 
when he's talking about Calvin's Geneva, he spent some time there. He became eventually one of the English preachers in Geneva, and he helped translate the Geneva Bible, which again has a huge influence on the spread of Christianity, uh, specifically the Reformed faith. For example, when the pilgrims came over to America, it was the Geneva Bible they had. That is, a, it is an English Bible. And he also was part of the Scots Confession of 1516, which was 1560, which really was the main, I would say, I guess one of the primary reform confessions that you find throughout um, Reformation history up until you get to the Westminster about 100 years from now. He is also known as the father of Presbyterianism. He did begin the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. He eventually goes back to Scotland. So he's, he is a huge name in Reformed theology, has a lot of influence, and we obviously still have Presbyterians today. Um, they would trace their history back to John Knox here. So with that, I do want to look at some confessional statements because we are a confessional people. You know, we, we've seen where a lot of people throughout church history have kind of just really been trying to figure out what marriage is and things like that. And again, our own society, as we talked about, is doing some of the same things. And so let's go back, reread through, through these historical documents and find out, well, what, what have we believed as Christians? What have we confessed positively, particularly as Reformed Christians? This brings us to, so again, we're kind of skipping centuries. We're just going to kind of be going broadly, really broadly, high level today uh, through three centuries. So we go from Calvin's Geneva in the 16th century. We're now in the 17th century. In 1643, the English parliament called upon several divines, just think theologians, pastors, doctors of theology, to help them figure out, well, how should the Church of England's government and worship and doctrine and the discipline be? They spent a period of five years, lots of discussion, lots of debates. There's lots of great books. You can find out about all the nitty-gritty details. Um, a lot of great men were a part of this. And they ultimately come up with the documents, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms. About 20 years after that, 16, well, I guess it's 10 years, 1658 is when the Congregationalists write the Savoy documents, Savoy Declaration, and then our own 1689 Confession written in 1677 using both of those documents, the Westminster documents and the Savoy documents, but finally get published in 1689. That's why we usually just say shorthand 1689. So with that, let's look at chapter 24 of marriage and divorce. And as we get to parts where, our, where there's a difference in, in what we have in our own confession, I'll point those out. But for now, we are looking at a Presbyterian confession. So. Chapter 24, Of Marriage and Divorce. Paragraph 1. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. As you can see, straight from the beginning, they root their theology in creation, in God's ordinance. It is an institution of man. When we were studying out church history, we saw... The church fathers do this. You know, throughout church history, one thing they always got right, they always rooted marriage back in creation. God instituted this, contrary to modern thinking that it's a social construct or something like that. Um, God is the source. He tells us how it is, how it works. Yes, and e even though at this time there was really no debates on whether there's homosexual marriage or if there's just more than man and woman, the Bible clearly tells us, so they just give that positive affirmation. Yes, it's one man, it's one woman. You know, there's really no need for further explanation than that. 
And the divines, what you find here is that they weren't really interested in what the zeitgeist of the culture was or what cultural constructs there were that they didn't want to you know, step on toes of. They were interested in, in God's truth, God's unchanging truth. They believed the word uh, was God's word, and this is what we go to for our doctrine and our life. It's unchanging, and so this is why the definition we have of marriage here is sufficient and good, because we get it from God's word. Throughout time, you may have to give some more explanation and more say, yes, we're not talking about this. No, that is not marriage. No, you can't marry that thing, so that's only between one man and one woman. But again, main point, it's ultimately rooted in God. The 69 Confession has a difference here. Our title doesn't say of marriage and divorce. So the Westminster document, it's six paragraphs. Ours is only four paragraphs, so is the Savoy's. We took out the part about divorce. It's not necessarily because, whenever our confession doesn't have something, another confession have, has, it doesn't necessarily mean we don't agree with it. It's more of a, a sign of unity. There are some differences in divorce throughout church history, if we, as we've seen. Some will believe that it is um, only through adultery can divorce be allowed, or adultery and abandonment can be allowed. And then you'll have some who would hold a permanence view that would disagree with that altogether. So they took that out probably more for unity. Maybe there are some Baptist churches that wouldn't have agreed with every statement, as we'll get to in paragraphs five and six. But again, we're just, we'll look at those briefly. All right, paragraph two goes on and really talks to us about the four reasons for marriage. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, basically propagation of children in legitimate ways, and of the church with a holy seed. And here they, they source um, Malachi 2.15. That's basically a quote from Malachi 2.15. It reads... Um, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So God is seeking godly offspring, according to Malachi. And lastly, for the preventing of uncleanliness, 1 Corinthians 7. We've dealt with that text a lot through this series, especially this part 9 of this series. So... In our Baptist Confession, we only have three reasons. You can kind of look at those and probably guess which one we don't agree with here. It is the third reason that one of the purposes of marriage is for holy seed. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't diligent in raising our children. You know, we encourage family worship here. We have different children's classes during Sunday school. You know, we do encourage them to be in service with us all together as a family, um, all together, all the saints, and their children as well. So this doesn't necessarily mean we just abandon our children, as you might hear, but we don't believe they are holy seed. And I would just point to John 1, 12 through 13, which reads, But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this is one of the difference with really an Old Testament economy of, you know, there were people were part of the family of God through birth, right, being a child of Abraham. Now it's through a second birth. Big difference there. So that is one part where our confession is different. We just take out that part. But if you remember throughout church history, the kind of main goals of marriage are not this. And this is something we've been seeing ever since we hit the Reformation and their views of marriage. One of the very first reasons they say marriage is good and one of the purposes of it was for companionship, was for friendship with the spouse, was for mutual help of each other. 
And that is drastically different than what we got throughout kind of that, that Romanist history, where they were more like, well, if, if you have to do it, at least there's children involved. It'll also keep you from fornication, although it's a lesser good. You know, we throw all those things from Jerome and Augustine. And then lastly, because it was a sacrament and the different views on that. So it's very different. In the reform view, we see, well, first, the very first thing God says about marriage is for companionship. And so that is one thing that is good. This is something Calvin dealt with when we looked at Calvin's Geneva, when he had couples ask him, well, we can't have children, so should we call this marriage off? He's like, well, that's not the main purpose of marriage. You know, just work harder at, the other, at fulfilling these other two parts. Um, because in God's providence, you're not able to have children that way doesn't mean it's an illegitimate marriage. In some, some Roman, Romanist circles, they would have given that as a reason, but we'll continue on. Paragraph three gets into who you can and can't marry. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. That was something, again, big with Calvin, like really would not for arranged marriages, making sure both people were on par with this agreement, this covenant they're making together. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry in the Lord, right? Don't be unequally yoked. I go on to explain that a little more. And therefore, such, a, such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. 2 Corinthians 6.14, one of the sources they, they cite is clear. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, in this paragraph, there are a couple parts that our confession will scratch out, so will the Savoy as well. We took out that you, it should be to a true Reformed religion. Kind of more shows you need just saying true religion. I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, should not marry with infidels. They take out the word papist. Not that they would agree that papists fall under idolaters ultimately, but they take out that word. And they also take out the word maintaining damnable heresies. They just make it singular. They go, well, if they hold one heresy, that's probably enough. That's, that's a minor thing. I don't think a Westminsterian would say, well, no, it's only if they hold to two heresies or more, you can't marry them. That's just a minor probably update that you see in the, I believe it begins in the Savoy, and the 1689 follows that as well. Paragraph 4 continues who you can't marry, and this gets into laws about incest and whatnot. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word. Lots of examples there that we'll probably go into more when we get into marriage proper in the confession. Nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consents of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. I love that last part, and even though it's there specifically talking about the example of incestuous marriages, you know, like they, even if there's a law of man that says, okay, that's fine, under God's law, it's not fine. And I think we can easily broadly apply that to all these other various types of so-called marriages. You know, people marrying themselves or marrying the Eiffel Tower, men marrying men, women with women. Properly under God's law, that's not marriage. Even if a state, a country, uh, a so-called pastor would say that that is a marriage under God's law, under his view, that's not a marriage. Chapter 4 here, or this part of chapter 4, is where our confession and the Savoy Confession end. Chapter 4 does go on. It's basically redundant. It gives a little more. 
It says, the man may not marry any of his wife's kindred nearer in blood than he may his own, nor the woman of her husband's kindred nearer in blood than her own. So it's just, it's just redundant, which is probably one reason we took it out. Chapter 5, this is where it gets into adultery. This, I'm sorry, this is where it gets into divorce. This we don't have in our own confession. Though if you heard Pastor Ryan's sermons through the Ten Commandments, specifically on commandment number 7, thou shalt not commit adultery, he does get into reasons for divorce. He also interacts with the uh, permanent marriage view. And everything he said and preached would have lined up with the Westminsterian documents here. But again, it's taken out probably to give more unity amongst Baptists and Congregationalists. But this is what it says. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract, here's just talking about uh, a betrothal being engaged, being detected before marriage, giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve the contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce, and after the divorce to marry another, as is the as the offending party, as if the offending party were dead. Excuse me. Although the corruption of man be such as it is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, that's really fancy way of saying people are always trying to find some workaround around God's law. Well, maybe there's another reason for marriage, and especially around this time when you have kings going to popes asking for annulments for all sorts of reasons, really silly reasons, I and mean, not just kings and popes, uh, but other people in authority. Um, it makes it clear, even though people are trying to do that, Yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrates is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. Wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Basically, divorce is serious. It should not be taken lightly, not be taken on a whim, and we should make sure both parties are involved in it. This isn't just one party saying they're just done. There should be trying reconciliation. Again, and it's all going to be a one-to-one case because who knows what else is involved in this. But that's essentially what, what these last two paragraphs of the Westminster is talking about. Again, divorce is only given because of the hardness of men's hearts. So it does line up with our reform view of total depravity, men's hearts. Um, you know, perhaps they were not truly Christian, or perhaps they've fallen into great sin and don't want to repent. You know, church discipline is going to be needed and whatnot. So, but that is our confessional view. That is what the reform have believed. So now I do want to look at again some lives of the believers. This was kind of the original intent of what we started with in this series, just seeing how they practically live together by reading some some love letters of them, kind of something different um, that we don't usually get in church history. Interesting thing about this picture, I, and I, I, I don't know why, but Elton John used to own both of these portraits. These are Puritans. These are just some Puritan dudes and dudettes. And uh, Elton John owned it until 2006 when he gave it to a, or I think he sold it, to a museum. So just a weird factoid. You probably didn't think you'd hear about Elton John today, but you did. All right. So this is John Hutchinson. He was a Puritan and a military commander. He lived between 1615 and 1664. So again, we're kind of, this is during the time of the Westminster. They're very influenced by this. He was, had a pretty high position as a commander in Nottingham, so much so that he was one of the judges that actually signed the death warrant for Charles I. This is during the times of the uh, Civil Wars there, uh, 1642 through 51. 
He was also a guard at the Tower of London. Eventually, he winds up marrying Lady Lucy Apsley, later becomes Lady Lucy Hutchinson. We're not sure when she was born. I'm sorry, we are sure when she was born, 1620. We're not sure when she died. Sometime around after 1675, usually you'll see some say circa 1680. Doesn't matter, she outlived her husband. The main point here. John Hutchinson wound up getting accused of some conspiracy, we're not, and we're not really told whether he was guilty or not, but he gets thrown, ironically, in a tower he used to protect in the Tower of London. The conditions were so bad, Lady Lucy says when she would visit him that she would dry off all his leather, clean everything off, but it was just so damp and dingy. By the next morning, it would be growing mold on it. He eventually dies of a fever pretty early in prison, and uh, that is the end of his life. And Lady Lucy, as Dr. Haken will talk about, determined to vindicate her husband's memory, Lucy drew up a memoir of her husband initially for their children. It was completed in 1671 after seven years of labor. It preserves a beautiful picture of the life and passion of a Puritan marriage. She was also able to sit in on some of John Owen's sermons. She was very learned in translating from Latin. She had some Greek and Hebrew as well. It's pretty odd for a woman to be a translator at, during this period, but she did even translate some of John Owen's works that were originally written in Latin to the English tongue. So she did also get to know Owen, which is pretty interesting. There are some histories that say they eventually became Baptist. I'm not exactly sure about that, but you'll find that in some histories. So did you have a question? Or no, you just, okay. He goes on, this letter shows the importance of making sure one's children are aware of the love between their parents. It also illustrates the truth that love for God ultimately must exceed love of the human beloved. Um, at the time of his death, John Hutchinson did ask that his wife be given this message. So this is actually from John Hutchinson. He, he said, tell her this, quote, let her, as she is above other women, show herself in this occasion a good Christian and above the pitch of ordinary women. I bring that up because she makes reference to this in the beginning of her memoirs. And in the beginning of her memoir, she's really wrestling with, you know, the common wisdom is to just get everything of my husband's, throw it away, burn it, get rid of it, because it makes me sad to remember him and just move on. But she's saying, for myself, I think it's best that I remember him, because he was, you know, such, such a glorious saint, she'll say. And, and I want my children to remember him, and so I'm going to, as much as memory can serve, tell who this man was. And it was mostly for his children, but it's become since a Cambridge classic, actually, who's reprinting it still to this day. Uh, but this is part of these memoirs. This is where she starts. She says, But I am under the command not to grieve at the common rate of a desolate woman. While I am studying which way to moderate my woe, and if it were possible, to augment my love, can for the present find out none more just to your dear father, nor consolatory to myself than the preservation of his memory, which I need not gild with such flattering commendations as the hired preachers do, equally give to the truly and tutelary honorable, a naked, undressed narrative speaking the simple truth of him, will deck him with more substantial glory than all the penitentiary, yeah, then all the penitentiaries, the best pins could ever consecrate to the virtues of the best man. That's just basically a really fancy eulogy. So she goes on now telling us about his, his life as a husband. She writes, 
let not excess of love and delight in the streams make us forget the fountain. Oh yeah, she starts off with, with recognizing, I love my husband so much, but he also has a certain place in my heart. He's not to be above God. And she says it so poetically and wonderfully. She goes on, he and all his excellencies came from God and flowed back into their own spring. There, let us seek them. Thither, let us hasten after him. There, having found him, let us cease to bewail among the dead that which is risen, or rather was immortal. His soul conversed with God so much when he was here that it rejoiced to be now eternally freed from interruption in that blessed exercise. His virtues were recorded in heaven's annals and can never perish. By them, he yet teaches us and all those to whose knowledge they shall arrive. It is only his fetters, his sins, his infirmities, his diseases that are dead, never to revive again. Nor would we have them. They were his enemies and ours. By faith in Christ, he vanquished them. Our conjunction, if we had any with him, was indissoluble. If we were knit together by one spirit in one body of Christ, we are so still. This is rather interesting. She's talking about, you know, you'll, you'll hear us Baptists talk a lot about the local church, and we believe that every member of Christ's universal church should be part of a local expression of his church. But, you know, we don't often bring up that in this universal church, and you'll see this in, in a lot of hymns that we sing even sometimes, that there is a, a mystical union we have with all the saints throughout all of time because we are one in Christ. And this is what she's talking about. If we were mutually united in one love of God, good men and goodness, we are so still. What is it then we well for his remove? The distance? Faithless fools, sorrow only makes it. Let us but ascend to God in holy joy for the great grace given his poor servants, and he is there with us. He only is removed from the malice of his enemies from which we should not express our love to him in being afflicted. We may mourn for ourselves that we come so tardily after him that we want his guide and assistance in our way. And yet if our tears did not put out our eyes, we should see him even in heaven, holding forth his flaming lamp of virtuous examples and precepts to light us through the dark world. It is time that I let into your knowledge that splendor which, while it cheers and enlightens your heavy senses, let us remember to give all his and all our glory to God alone who is the father and fountain of all light and excellence. So now she starts getting into his, him being a husband. She writes, For conjugal affections to his wife, it was such in him as whosoever would draw out a rule of honor, kindness, and religion to be practiced in that estate need no more but exactly draw out his example. Never man had a greater passion for a woman nor a more honorable esteem of a wife. He governed by persuasion, which he would never employed but to things honorable and profitable for herself. He loved her soul and her honor more than her outside, and yet he had even for her person a constant indulgence, exceeding the most temporary passions of the most luxurious fools. Luxurious is a word we don't really use anymore. It comes from the, that ux, which means his wife in Latin. It's talking about someone who is irrationally fond of their wife, just going gaga for her. You might, it might be like, if you remember Luther was talking how during the courting period, you're kind of drunk with love. It's, it's a little bit of that, kind of unrealistic. It's not really going to last. It's just a temporary fever pitch, I guess. If he esteemed her at a higher rate than she and herself could have deserved, 
he was the author of that virtue. He lavished on her while she only reflected his own glories upon him. All that she was was him while he was here and all that she is now at best but his pale shade. So constant was he in his love that when she ceased to be young and lovely, he began to show most fondness. He loved her at such a kind and generous rate as words cannot express. Yet even this, which was the highest love he or any man could have, was yet bounded by a superior. He loved her in the Lord as his fellow creature, not his idol, but in such a manner as showed that an affection bounded in the just rules of duty far exceeds every way all the irregular passions in the world. He loved God above her and all the other dear pledges of his heart, and at his command and for his glory, cheerfully resigned them. I find it rather beautiful that still to this day, if you go to the United Kingdom, St. Margaret's Church in Nottingham, you will find a memorial and a tomb of both John and Lucy Hutchinson side by side. So they have a really beautiful story. And um, indeed, she, she, some of her stuff is still being discovered and published. Uh, I won't go into that. I, want, I do want to finish this. So, uh, But she, she does have some poetry as well. All right, fast forwarding to another century, we're going to look at English Baptist minister of the 18th century, Samuel Pierce. He's from the time 1766 to 1799. He winds up being a close friend and correspondent with William Carey. He did help start the Baptist Missionary Society. He was one of the six or 12 men, I forget how many, I believe it was 12 men, who started that society, um, very much uh, an evangelist. And we're going to be looking at him and his wife, Sarah Hopkins, who we sadly don't have any letters from her. We also don't have any kind of artwork or pictures of her. But uh, Samuel Pierce writes a ton about her, so we're really just going to look at it from his side. And um, they did get married February 2nd, 1791. And the very next day, he wrote to a mutual friend saying, The occasion of my writing is a source of joy inexpressible to myself, a joy in which I know you will participate. I am no longer a bachelor. Your amiable friend permitted me to call her my own yesterday. So again, a very jubilant man uh, at getting married. Of this, uh, historian Haken says, Pierce expressed in his understanding of what should lie at the heart of their marriage in a letter he wrote to his future wife a little over two months before their wedding. He wrote, quote, May my dear Sarah and myself be made the means of leading each other on in the way, to the heavenly kingdom, and at last there meet to know that even temporary separation means no more. For Pierce, husbands and wives were to be a means of grace to one another in their earthly pilgrimage. In other words, they were to be intimate allies. In the letter Samuel wrote to his wife, we see how he continued to stir up her love for him after their marriage. The pursuit of the beloved does not end with the marriage ceremony. All the wives are saying, amen, yeah. Um, he did do a lot of itinerant preaching, so he was always out and about. Not always, but sometimes it would be shorter trips, sometimes it would be longer. But he, it seems like he was gone for a day. He would write her a letter. And um, it, 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 is, it is really sweet how he considers his love and is always working at fanning that flame in that marriage. He's really, it's, that, that was something when I was, as I was reading through this that really encouraged me. In, in doing that, continuing to pursue wives. And we hear all that modern marriage advice, like continue to date your wife and keep romance alive and things like that. 
you know, that's not anything new, and it obviously does work. So they had a, a really rich uh, marriage, as we'll see. He writes to her, let us both live near to God and our separation from each other will be the less regretted. Oh, be much in prayer for your own SP, out of Samuel Pierce. So just giving advice to how they deal with the times when they're away from each other. I think it's a good time to seek God. Uh, his love for his wife seemed to only deepen after the marriage. So contrary to, to what Luther would say is like, you only get married because you're kind of drunk in love, and then you get married, and you're like, okay, I made this commitment, now I'm going to work on fanning the flame. His love never seemed to hit that down point. It just came, seemed to keep going up and up. So this is about a year after his marriage. He writes her saying, of enjoying your friendship than the admiration of the crowds. Uh, I feel like I missed, I, missed a, I missed part of this. What is it? He told her, oh, yes, he told her that he was more desirous. I'm, I, I clipped a lot of letters because I wanted to kind of go through the years. He's talking about their friendship and how he, he's more desirous of enjoying your friendship than the admiration of crowds of Helens or Venuses or Cleopatras or all the females of Egypt, Greece, Rome, or Birmingham. They were from Birmingham. So He concluded this letter by saying, When I add all the respect, the gratitude, the tenderness, and affection of which my nature is capable into one sum, I feel the whole comes vastly short of what I owe to you, my lovely friend my inestimable Sarah. Again, even in our confessional statements, you see, you know, first purpose of marriage, companionship. We see that those who believe these things and preach them, they, they live them out. He is first seeing her as just his best friend. The following year, when on a preaching trip to Wells, he wrote his wife saying, how often have I longed for your society since I left you? Every pleasant scene which opened up to us on the way. So I imagine they're traveling on horse and buggy or something, and they pass over a hill and just see this beautiful vista, rolling hills, who knows what. And there, and there were very numerous. Lost half its beauty because my lovely Sarah was not present to partake its pleasures with me. To see the country was not the immediate optic of my visiting well. So he has to kind of remind himself, well, I'm not mainly here for sightseeing. I came to preach the gospel to tell poor sinners of the dear Lord Jesus, to endeavor to restore the children of ministry to the pious pleasures of divine enjoyment. That is a, a great uh, view of the ministry, to endeavor to restore the children of misery to the pious pleasures of divine enjoyment. I love that. On another preaching trip in London, you know, bustling, busy city, lots of people, lots of different types of women to see and to meet, he writes her saying, Every day improves not only my tenderness, but my esteem for you. Called as I am now to mingle much with society in all its orders, I have daily opportunity of making remarks on human temper. And after all I have seen and thought, my judgment as well as my affection still approves of you as the best of women for me. Now this is like five years after their marriage, and you're Part of me, I, I, I literally thought this as I was reading. I was like, man, this guy is just like flattering her, trying to get brownie points. And then he says this in the very next part. We have been too long united by conjugal ties to admit a suspicion of flattery in our correspondence or conversation. I begin to count the days which I hope will bring me to rejoinment of your dear company. In other words, he's saying, we've been married long enough. You know this is my true heart. You know I'm not exaggerating. You know I'm not just, you know, trying to get some brownie points like, this is my true heart. Just, just beautiful. Again, following year, he goes on another trip. This was a rather more extensive trip. He's now preaching in Ireland, and he writes her, I believe, 
um, from, from the Capitol, I'm not sure, but he goes on saying, last evening were my eyes delighted at the sight of a letter from my dear Sarah. I rejoice that you, as well as myself, find that absence diminishes not affection. That must have been a common phrase back then. For my part, I compare our present correspondence to a kind of courtship rendered sweeter than what usually bears that name by a certainty of success. Not less than when I sought your hand in marriage do I now court your heart, nor doth the security of possessing you at all lessen my pleasure at the prospect of calling you my own. When we meet again, oh, our dear fireside, when shall we sit down toe-to-toe -to -toe and tete-a-tetes? That is literally fate, or head-to-head. -head. We would just say face-to-face, -face, just having a private conversation. Not a long time, I hope, will elapse ere I rejoin that felicity. He, he had one I didn't include in here, but he's like, oh, that I don't have to write you anymore and I could use my hands to just wrap around you. We can just talk without having to write each other. He, he just so longed for her physical presence, for her to be, you know, there's nothing like it. And that, I thought that was rather interesting because I remember when my wife and I were, were dating, we did a lot of email correspondence. And I, I said things in email that I would have been afraid to say in person. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shyer guy. I have a harder time speaking and kind of really getting what I want to say out. But if I have time to write, it really does lend me, myself, personally, to say more, to kind of think through it more, maybe come up with better words, some better synonyms to, or even analogies to think of what I'm saying. Um, and I found it interesting because today my wife left. She's going to be gone for about a week. She's going to a family funeral. And, you know, the next hour we're just texting each other back. Oh, I saw this thing. Oh, look what the cat's doing. And we're just, we're always having this quick correspondence. And we don't think, well, back then, you know, they have to send a letter. It's, who knows how many days or weeks it takes from some of these places. And you don't know what's happening. You know, there's some letters where he writes to his wife and he's not sure if their child's dying because the last letter the wife's talking about a serious cough the daughter has. So he's just frantically writing. You could tell, like, is she sick? Is she still alive? Is there even a pulse? Like, do I need to come back home? She wound up being fine. Um, but that's just, you, you don't get those quick answers. And, you know, we can, not having time to think through things maybe is part of what, what uh, why we, maybe we can't speak as romantically as this anymore. I don't know. Maybe you all do, and I just don't know. And you keep that between you and your wife. That's perfect. So I don't want to know. All right, moving on. If you wonder if Sarah felt the same way, again, like I said, we don't really have any writings from her. Her sister, however, after the time that her husband died, so this is, at, this is 1800, this is just a couple months after her husband died, uh, tuberculosis, I believe. She does write her sister and tells her that she's praying for her marriage because uh, she's praying that her marriage would be, quote, enjoyed, uh, she's praying that her sister's marriage, that she might, quote, Enjoy the most uninterrupted happiness, talking about husband and wife. For indeed, I can scarce form an idea, this side of heaven, of greater equal to what I have enjoyed. So no doubt, um, Sarah, beloved Sarah, was very much uh, of equal par with, with Samuel and their love for each other. Closing this section out, um, Michael Haken says, 17th and 18th century Baptists talk and think about marriage sorry, talk and thinking about marriage was not merely that and no more. It was translated into concrete reality and truth by marriages like that of Samuel and Sarah Pierce. And again, 
I could bring up dozens and dozens of more examples just in that century. There's so many more. Even some of you throughout the months as I've been doing this have, have been like, oh yeah, have you read about Calvin's marriage or this person's marriage and brought up different people? And there are a lot of great models for marriage. But anyways, we just had to pick some so we could eventually finish this. Uh, Haken goes on saying, today we desperately need such models and the thought that undergirds them. For our world supposes marriage to be but an artifact that has been shaped by the hands of human culture and hence can be reshaped at will. The Baptist authors whose writings and doings have been examined above, however, remind us that marriage contains both an essay and a bene essay. That is, it's, it's what's essential and what is for the, the being the, the benefit of it for marriage and that both are divinely given. So with that, that is the last section of history that we looked at. It brings us to a close on our series, finally, after nine parts of looking at marriage, divorce, and remarriage throughout church history, beginning since right after the time of the apostles. As I was reflecting on this, I was kind of thinking, you know, okay, so what are some things I've myself learned studying all this history and trying to bring out, you know, just some of the highlights of it? Nothing, no great, amazing revelations, but simply the truths that, you know, what you believe matters. You know, theology matters. We hear that a lot, and it does. We've seen that time and time again throughout church history. Uh, there always seems to be confusion on this issue, you know. And I know here we're just specifically talking about marriage, but we were really talking about any doctrine. There's always some kinds of confusions that come up. God's word is unchanging. It, again, needs to be our guide that we keep going back to. Um, God does not fail. I was, I was actually on the way here listening to the hymn Abide With Me, and it had this really great line. Um, it was the second verse, and the versions I usually hear of it are verses like 1, 3, 4, and 5. So I, don't really, I, I didn't really know about the second verse, but this version I was listening to had it, and it talked about how day-to-day the ebbs and flows of life are waning and more. I wish I, I, wish I had it memorized. I have the rest of the, of the hymn memorized, but it talks about basically everything's changing and looking around, everything's just decaying, just more and more you know, entropy. It's, it's all just decaying. Uh, we need your help, oh, you who never changes, God. This is why our foundation is God's word. It doesn't change. You know, we don't want to be on shifting sand. We see what you get from that. Just look at our culture, turn on the news, and you'll see plenty of examples of that. And lastly, we need models and you know, who would I point to today? I don't know, but I would say we also are models. So our children are watching us. Other couples are watching us. For those of you who aren't married, you know, this is all stuff future, or I guess aren't married and don't have the gift of singleness. Um, this is stuff for you to consider in the future that marriage does matter. Typically, people will learn from other examples. And so we should be those that seek, seek to model, obviously, Christ and his love for the church as we've gone through in church history. So with that, are there any questions before I just give one final quote. All right. I'll end with this encouragement because thinking about modern day society's view of marriage and things like that can kind of be, I don't want to say depressing because that's, that's too looking to ourselves and not to God. Um, but just give some encouragement and just this exhortation. I found this pastor's really helpful. He actually wrote this on the Founders Ministries blog on our chapter on marriage. This is how he ends it. He says, Marriage gives great hope for souls burdened by sin. It's a mirror reflecting how Jesus changed everything eternally. He died and rose again for his sinful bride. He took her flesh, entered her ruin, 
bore her hatred, defeated her sin, conquered her death, crushed her adversary, and purchased her life. He now reigns for her good and causes all things to serve her salvation. Nothing in all creation can separate her from his love, and he will return one day to take her to himself. And thus, she shall ever be with her Lord, the greatest comfort she can possibly have. Satan hates this reality. But every marital distortion, innovation, and confusion bespeaks the death throes of a serpent whose head was crushed by the lamb who has overcome. Marriage is a parable of his purchase, sovereignty, and dying love. In this verity, we behold his victory and stand fast in our bridegroom's love. With that, let's go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed. Well, Father, we do thank you for that beautiful picture that you give us of Christ and his church in marriage. We do thank you for the wonderful institution of marriage itself that you have given to not only your people, but to all people, God. We do thank you that we are your people and can understand marriage on a much deeper level for what it truly shows and represents, God. Father, we do pray that we would be models of Christ and the church in our own marriages, uh, not just to our spouses, uh, but to our kids and to all those around us. Father, we know we can't do this apart from your Spirit's help, God, so please help us. Please grow us in our love. Um, We know our love can never stop growing, God, so please grow us in our love for our spouses and for each other, God. In Jesus' name we pray.